And aren't you glad to be here this morning? Great worship, singing unto our Lord, and thank you, Mike. Singing unto our Lord and honoring Him this morning. Today we're going to continue our series on Changed Lives, and this will be the end of our series on Changed Lives. Uh, we've, been, we've been sharing about the different lives that were changed by the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So if you have your Bible, we're going we're gonna to end up in Acts chapter 9, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 2, all right? But uh, as I was thinking about the changed lives, uh, I'm, I'm looking a lot at the changed lives that I have uh, been experiencing this week. As you know, my daughter graduated from Ringgold High School on Friday night. A lot of other graduations have been going on, I, and uh, I know uh, many, of, many of our church family have been experiencing the graduation, but... Part of what comes with that, they call it Throwback Thursday. Have you seen Throwback Thursday on Facebook? Where they take a picture whenever they graduated from kindergarten, and they put it up against the picture whenever they graduated from high school, and it's like, wow, this is a major change. And, you know, of course, everybody's, you know, all the, the mothers are crying and all that stuff, and an occasional dad sheds a tear. But uh, we're out there, and we're seeing that, okay, this is, you know, this is this big life change. So you see this little kid that you once had, and now you see them, they're an adult. Or at least they think they are. And they're, 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 they're on their way to adulthood. They're on their way to college and they have all these things that life has just so changed. But at, at one time, they, they, uh, some of them, I even remember them, a couple of them have told me that they remember those little years, those little child years. And they say how that they wish that they didn't have to have the responsibility of going to, to work already. Some of them have summer jobs and they remember those fun times. Well, their lives have changed. And this is what happens in our life. I would like to ask you, what would your throwback Thursday look like if it were a snapshot of your Christian life? When God came in and he entered your life, you'd say, well, here's what my life was like before, and then God entered my life, and now here's where I'm at today. And so I look at my throwback, and my throwback was way a long time ago, or, and, and you see what he has done, and you see this transformation today. We're going to begin looking in Acts chapter 2 here this morning, but the first point in your notes is that the early church was experiencing explosive growth due to the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus. They were experiencing explosive growth to the eyewitness testimonies of Jesus. Here's what happened. Jesus had, had a public ministry and people were following him. He had his 12 disciples and he had a little movement that was started, and, and he had a public ministry that lasted three years. And the, the authorities, the Pharisees, they did not want to uh, see this movement succeed. They, Jesus was a threat to their power. He was a threat to everything that they believed. So Jesus came out and just uh, did his ministry, and the Pharisees took him all the way to the cross. He dies on the cross, and for the Pharisees, that was enough. This is over. But Jesus took it a step further, and he rose from the dead. He, he, he came back to life again, and as he made these appearances to people, it changed their life. And they went around changing other lives by saying, listen, I met Jesus. I met the guy, you remember the guy was on the cross? He died, I met him. He came back to life. And they, they're going around and they're sharing this. And so that changes everything now. Whenever, when you have an eyewitness who says, yes, this is what happened. We've looked at our series so far. We've looked at Mary Magdalene, how that she was freed of seven demons. We saw Peter who denied Jesus, and God changed his life. He became a rock. We see the two men on the road to Emmaus, 
and how God transformed their lives. All, all the disciples, Jesus gives the mission uh, uh, to, the, to the disciples. This is what I want you to do, to go out and make disciples, to bring other people to Christ. And then uh, he appeared to 500 people. So this movement was, was, was moving and growing. And as a matter of fact, Acts 2.41 says this, And those who gladly received the, his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So in one single day, we have 3,000 people come to Christ, and they become part of this church, of, of the early church. So here was an exciting time, because it went from the small movement with just a few followers, and Jesus was, you know, everywhere he went, people followed him, and it was gaining momentum. And it looked like all hope was lost when he went to the cross. But when he conquered death, it just inspired the movement all the more. And now there are 3,000 people. Uh, if you go over to Acts 2.42, it says, And they continued uh, steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayer. So the, the church, they had a, a focus. They were spending time together. They were growing. And they were spreading this word. Verse 47 says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Things were happening every day. This was a, a great, exciting time for the church. It was rapid growth. People were, people were coming to Christ because Jesus rose from the dead. And because these people were going out and they were saying, listen, we met him. We saw him over at this event. He was over there. And he appeared to our friends over there. And, and over here, we, 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 he made an appearance. And, it, and, it, and the word was moving around that Jesus had risen from the dead. It validated their message. However, there was also persecution that came with that. And if you flip over to Acts chapter 7, you'll see a little bit about the persecution that had began. And, uh, and that persecution, we see here a Stephen, he was a preacher. He was out sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And as he shared the good news of Christ, um, they came and they brought accusations on him of blasphemy because he was preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus had died rose again, came back to life, and that he is the Messiah. So they took him outside of the city, uh, according to the Old Testament law, and they had stoned Stephen. Acts 7.58 says this, And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witness laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is our character this morning that we're going to look at. Saul. Saul becomes Paul. He, he has a, a transformation of his life. But uh, the next point in your notes is that Saul was the least likely candidate to become a follower of Jesus. He was the least likely candidate to become a follower of Jesus. Let me, let me read to you this scene from a paraphrase here from Acts chapter 7. Yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede. They dragged him out of the town and pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master, Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. Then he died. Here's Saul standing along. And he's watching this, this brutal event. He's watching them. They, they took him outside, Stephen, outside the city gates with all these stones so that nobody would even be able to take credit for who it was. Nobody would have, have that pinned on them that they were the murderer. And they kill him. 
for what he had done. For his claims that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Saul is standing there and their coats are at the feet of Saul as they do the, as they do the, the work of the stoning. And he's nodding along and he's going, mm-hmm. and he's smiling at this. As a matter of fact, go over to Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So here is Saul. Saul is making havoc over the church. He's going door to door. He is aggressive. He is going after the church. He's saying, uh, you know what, we're we're going to stop this movement. This is a movement that is contrary to what they believed. Contrary to what they think of God. And they were not willing to accept this new Messiah. He was not willing to just lay down and take that. Saul had came from a, he had had an incredible background. Saul of Tarsus, and uh, the, the place that he grew up, the, the education that he had, he was schooled, well-schooled at the, uh, the things of, uh, of Hebrew theology, at Hebrew law, and he was among the best of the best. As a matter of fact, Paul shares with us in Philippians chapter 3. He says, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am, pure, I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was, I was a member of the Pharisees, who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I, was harshly persecuted, that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law. Without fault. So Saul here was a, he was among the top. He was, he was the best of the best. He was such a good person in his eyes. He was a prideful man. And he, he, was, he, was, he was looking down on everybody. He was a Pharisee. Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked letters from him so that, uh, to the synagogue of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether, the, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. At this point, followers of Christ were not called Christians. They were members of the way. They were followers of the way. And it really was a new way. It was the Jesus way. It was G- Jesus, Jesus said, I've given you a new commandment. And they were following Jesus' way. Uh, they were abandoning the, the, uh, the old, old, old thoughts and they were coming to Jesus. They were following Christ and, and this is the Messiah. This was the new change. They were members of the way. If you go over to Straight Street, our teen center, you'll see on the back wall over there that a few years ago teenagers wrote the way. And it's giant block letters, the way, because they had discovered this verse. And they said, we're members of the way. Saul was infuriated with the followers of the way. And as a matter of fact, I like what Charles Swindoll says about him. He says, Saul was more like a modern-day terrorist than a devout follower of Judaism. A modern-day terrorist. Now, that brings back some imagery for you. 
He was that passionate to, to put Christianity out of existence, to take the followers of, of the way and just end this movement. He was a proud man. He looked down upon the, the followers of Christ. He, he looked down upon everybody. That's what a Pharisee did. C.S. Lewis says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see the things that are above. And so he was in a position where he was, he was filled with pride, pride of his own religion, pride of the things that he knew, that, that he thought he knew about God, and just zealous, and he was putting everybody else down. Why Damascus? Why did Saul go to Damascus? Here, here he is, he's on a road to Damascus, and if you, here's Jerusalem, and you go north, it's about 150 miles north to this town of Damascus. Why did he go there? That, it was not a small trip. It would take about seven days walking, potentially. According to Josephus, at one point in history, 10,000 Jews were massacred in Damascus. Hard evidence that at certain times, a significant number of Jewish people lived in that city. And Saul suspected that there were many of these Jews that were turning to Christ. And so he went out to Damascus to try and, and make the, go out to the farthest end and put an end to this movement. He was passionate about what he was trying to do to end Christianity. Saul had a defining moment, however. That's your next point in your notes. He had a defining moment on the road to Damascus. Uh, verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was just an angry man. He was on a mission of harm. And yet God gives him this defining moment. The light shines. And if you look at the verse there, it says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly, suddenly the light came down from heaven upon him. Suddenly. I want you to think about your life. How many times has God worked in your life like that? Suddenly. Your life, you're, living along, you're going along living your life, and all of a sudden, life has a major change. You're, you think everything's going the way that you had planned it, and then it changed. Maybe it was uh, some bad news from a doctor. The doctor gave you a bill of health that wasn't too good. Uh, maybe it was a family issue. Something that happened in your family and relationships were broken. Maybe it was a financial situation. And you look at these issues and what is God doing? He, we look and what happens when those times come in our life? We either go closer to God or further away from God. You got that phone call and it was bad news. And at that moment, what do we do? Look at what Saul did here. He fell to the ground. God blinded him with the light. The light blinded him and he fell to the ground. Verse 4. Then he fell to the ground and heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I want to encourage you about the, these events that happen in our life. Life takes sudden twists and turns. And we are not, none of us are gathered, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. But we are guaranteed right now with God. You're here. And God has given us this moment. And as those things happen, and as life takes this journey, how do we respond to God? Do we, do we complain about what is happening? That's my natural response. 
I go down to this complainment route. Where do I come and say, God, this is what God is doing in my life. Look, look what Jesus says to him here. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At that point, it had been about Saul thought he was fighting a movement. And Jesus took, took it to a personal level. He says, why are you persecuting me? No, 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 no. When you, when you persecute all those Christians, you're actually persecuting me. And so Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Look how Saul responds. Acts 9, 5. Saul asked the big question here. This is the third point in your notes there. Saul asked the big question. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? We could translate that word Lord there as sir, because it was more of a term of respect. He wasn't necessarily saying, God, you're here. He was saying, who are you, Lord? He was confused. There was things happened. He's blinded. He's on the ground. And he responds, who are you? But wait a minute. I thought it was a movement. I thought I was, I, I thought I was trying to end this movement. I didn't know it was a personal issue. And this is the moment when Saul moves from knowing about God to meeting God. And he went into a personal relationship with God right here. What do you mean, who are you, Lord? Think about the questions that we have for God. And as we, as we think of the questions, you know, I, I've talked to people through the years and they tell me, well, I have these questions. If God would answer these questions, I would be a follower of Christ. One of them, you might have heard somebody ask you like, how did he get all the animals on the ark? All right, you probably have heard that. That's an interesting thought, you know. How, and my kids, we talk about that at home and uh, one of these days, we'll figure that out when we get to heaven. We'll actually understand how that all happened. You know? I always say, well, you know, the animals could be very baby. And, and there's all kinds of questions. And I'm sure the science, science people have a lot better answers uh, than, than, than that simple answer there. But that's a good question. What? what how did that happen? And we, we go through these what? Um, look at some other questions that people have. Uh, will there ever be lasting peace in the world? Will we ever have lasting peace? What does the future hold for my family and me? That's a big question. What does the future hold for me? Why is there suffering in the world? And so people have these list of questions, and you start writing out those questions, and they seem really big. But it's not until we come and we ask this big question. Who are you, Lord? For when we ask that question, all those other questions get really small. And they're not as important as this question. Who are you, Lord? And that's the main question, the big question that Saul asked. Acts 9, 5. Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus responded, I am Jesus. I am the one you're persecuting. It is me. I am the Messiah. He's revealing himself. He met Jesus on that road to Damascus that day. The answer comes here that he is Jesus. And do not, he, he, he's telling him, look, I'm the one that, you're, that you have your issues with. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, that's not a term that we often use, is it? You know? I don't often go home and tell my kids, you know, I'm really serious today because it's hard for you to kick against the goads. 
You know, that, that's, that that's, just doesn't make sense in our culture, right? Um, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. This was a, a term that was often used in Greek and Latin literature, and it, was, it came from a rural, from a rural setting. It was a, what it was was the farmers used a goad. And so they had the ox, and they would use the ox to plow the field. So a goad was a, a piece of timber, long, skinny. On one end it was blunt, and on the other end it was sharp, had a pointed edge. And they would take this, this pointed edge, and as they're going along throughout, the, throughout plowing the field, they would take the goad and they would hit the ox in the, in the back leg. And so as he takes and hits the ox in the back leg, what would the ox do? He would respond and move forward a little bit. But sometimes the ox didn't want to cooperate. And the ox would take and he would kick back against the goad. So the farmer hits him with the, with the, with the goad and the ox kicks back. And so... Eventually, who wins in that situation? The ox or the farmer? It's the farmer. Because the farmer is in control. The farmer is in authority. And so he, he hits him. And if it hits him hard enough, sometimes he pierces the skin of the ox. Sometimes the ox has more pain. But in the end, he's going to get to where the farmer said, we're going. And so this is what happens here. He says, you are going to have a hard time Kicking against my goad. I'm the one with the prod. And I'm going to keep this going. And he says, let's look at what he had been doing for him. What had he been doing for, for Saul? Uh, he had heard the teachings of Jesus. The Pharisees would swarm around. And they would, they, they would listen to the teachings of Jesus so that, they could, so that they could sidetrack him. So that they could come up with things to why not to let him teach. So he had heard the teachings of Jesus. And so that, that teaching of Jesus was, he had heard some of it. Also, he was there when Stephen died peacefully. When God allowed him to die peacefully as they stoned him. And, and he heard Stephen pray. Stephen was even praying for Saul. So there's the good. And then he, here is Saul. He's trying to persecute the church. And as he persecutes the church, he, uh, the, the church seems to flourish. They're not... That, yes, some people were hidden from this. Some people were off the, off the scene, but it seemed like the church was growing instead of dying. So the goad was there. And now the goad, the ultimate goad on the road to Damascus, this bright light, God blinds him and he puts him down. And look here, Acts chapter 9, verse 6. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? That's the second big question. Lord, what do you want me to do? He went from being prideful about what I want to do to humble about what do you want me to do, God. He went from being under the authority of the Sanhedrin. That was like the Supreme Court of the day. And he said, I'm going not from their authority, but to your authority. What do you want me to do? And Think about that in your life. If you were to ask God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Not, not come to your friends and consult with your friends. What do you think I have to do? But go to God. What do you want me to do? Galatians 1.15, Paul tells us here. He said that, that the Lord came to him, revealed his son to me, so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being. 
He didn't come out and ask anybody else's opinion. Come back to the Sanhedrin. What do you think I ought to do? I had this bright light. I had this experience. What do you think should happen? No, he went directly back to God, and he responded, What do you want me to do? Now look here what he says. Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Next point in your notes, Ananias has a discussion with God about his fear of Saul. God told Saul what to do. Get up, you're going to go to this place, and then I'll give you further instruction. He goes to Ananias. Uh, now there was a certain disciple, verse 10, now there was a certain disciple named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the straight called Street. And inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has sent a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him, so that he might receive his sight. So the Lord speaks to one of his followers. He says, here I am, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he says, this is what I want you to do. Go over and, and lay hands on this guy. But look at the discussion that Ananias has with God. He goes back, he says, Ananias answers, uh, Lord, I, uh, I've heard about many, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And uh, here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, he's coming before God, he's saying, I don't know if you know this or not, but this guy has been killing people. This guy has been putting people in jail, and you want me to do what? You want me to go to Straight Street? You want me to go to that house and take this guy? And you want me to touch him? You want me to pray? Look what God tells him, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias has made his case before the Lord, and he goes over, and he says, Okay, Lord, you said it, I'm going to do it. Verse 17, And Ananias went his way, and he entered the house. Now just think about Ananias going up to that house. You know, he's knocking on a door, and, okay, I guess they're not home. Uh, he knocks on the door again, and they come, and they open the door, they bring him in. And he goes in, and it's now time, and he sees this blind Saul, and he's thinking, we give him back a sight. What's going to happen? And he lays his hands on him. And he's like, brother Saul. And listen, sometimes God asks us to do things. And there's fear that we have. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we are supposed to follow and obey God, right? So sometimes there is fear that we have. But we don't have to fear. And so Saul is, uh, Ananias lays hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you and on the road has, as you came, he has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. 
And he arose and he was baptized. Immediately, again, Saul. Uh, Saul had this, this passion against Christianity. And now God brings him and he has passion for God. He was against God. Now he's for God. He's totally behind this new Messiah. He arose and was baptized. Baptism. Let me just share just a thought on baptism. Baptism doesn't get you to heaven. I always tell people baptism gets you wet. Okay? That's about it. It gets you wet. All right? It's an outward sign of an inward decision. It is the next step. It's a, it's a step of obedience. And so the Apostle Paul said, uh, I'm sorry, Saul here, he becomes Paul. Saul says that I am going to be a follower of Christ now. And immediately he gets up and he was baptized. He followed the Lord in obedience. And I, I want to encourage you, whatever things that God is working in your life and uh, baptism is one of them. And we've got to be obedient. And we, we do that. And we follow through. And it's, it's just an outward sign of an inward decision that we're following Christ. Verse 19. So when he had received food and was strengthened, then Saul came some days with the disciples at Damascus. And uh, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. So here he is. The last point on your, on your notes. Saul, who we know as Paul, turned from a from being an enemy to an advocate of the gospel. At one point in his life, he was an enemy trying to, trying to stop Christianity. And then God meets him on the road, transforms his life, and what happens? He becomes an advocate for the gospel. He became the, one of the strongest voices ever for the church. Look at the things that he wrote in the New Testament that God used him to write. Look at the missionary journeys, the churches that were started. And God did this on fire. But probably in our day, we would look at him and would say, uh, we're not even going to invite that guy. That guy is not on our list because he could hurt us. And you know what? God does that. He transforms lives and he changes us. So today, I'd like to ask you, have you asked the two big questions of God. Number one, who are you? Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they responded, well, some say that you're, you're a good prophet. Others say you're a great teacher. And some say that you are the Messiah. And that's the, the big question. So have you met this Jesus? Have you had an interaction with this risen Lord? Because if, he, if, he if we have, shouldn't, be trans, shouldn't we be transforming our towns and our communities? Going out, listen, I've got a relationship with the God of the universe. With the Jesus who rose from the dead. And secondly, that question, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Uh, you know, we've asked you to pray over the summer prayer emphasis. And we're, we have our summer significance. And we ask you to... To take your Bible and to, to get with God and to pray. But could you imagine if you were praying over that and you said, you know, we're praying for the vacation Bible school. school. Lord, what do you want me to do? I think God will begin to answer that. And begin to direct you. Lord, what do you want me to do for vacation Bible school? Invite your neighbor or whatever. And God's going to lead and do all kinds of exciting things. But as we're, as we're coming to him, we're saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? We've asked God to provide for the church financially. Lord, what do you want me to do? We've asked to pray that God will, will, will keep our church 
healthy and strong through the summer. Lord, what do you want me to do? As we close today, I want to ask you to take this week and let's go home and let's seek the Lord. Who are you? If you've not accepted him as your Savior, the Bible says that today's the day. Now's the time. Don't resist. Accept him and come to him. Lord, who are you? Maybe there was an event in your life, something that's occurring right now or in the past, and you can look and you say, wow, God suddenly was working in my life. But I didn't see it as God at that point. Lord, who are you? And come and ask him. How about, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's bound for With our heads bowed and eyes closed, I just ask you to meet with God. Come before him now and just ask those questions. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, who are you? In my life, I've seen all these events that are happening, and maybe I haven't been watching your hand. If you're in this place and you've not accepted him as your Savior, you can do that right where you're seated today. Just call upon him. The Bible says, Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from the punishment of their sin. And you can call upon him right now in your seat. Just call unto the Lord. Father God, pray something like this. Father, I come before you and I know that I'm a sinner, that I've done wrong things. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he came back to life again. God, I invite you into my life right now. Thank you for revealing to me that you are my God, that you love me, that you've given me a home in heaven. And for others, maybe you need to ask that question What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do, Lord? In this particular situation, Lord, what do you want me to do? And wait upon the Lord and respond as God leads you. Maybe others need to think about baptism. So many areas of our life that we need to be just responding to God in obedience. If he would go to the cross and give his life on that cross for you, do you think he would tell you, to do something that would harm you. Respond to him now. Father God, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for dying on the cross to pay for our sin. Thank you, Lord, as we've been looking at these characters throughout the, throughout the Bible, that we see so many people's lives that have been changed. They were changed by Christ. Changed by the risen Lord. You came back to life again and you conquered death that we may have life. I ask now, Lord, that you'll be with each person as we seek you. Thank you for this record of your work. And I pray that you'll help us to respond to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we close our service. And if you'd like to come and kneel and pray as we sing, feel free to do so. But let's worship our Lord.